Welcome to Generations United's podcast, a monthly series where we share insights from experts in the intergenerational field about why and how these practices are so important in improving the lives of children, youth, and older adults. I'm your host, Donna Butts. I'm the executive director of Generations United. And today I am so excited because I get to talk to one of my absolute favorite people in the world, somebody who's been, I feel like we've been in the trenches together for many years, and he's been an amazing leader, friend, colleague, and and inspiration for many, many years. So I get to welcome Mark Friedman, who's the CEO of Encore. So welcome, Mark. Thanks, Donna. And the feeling is mutual and emphatic. (laughs) I'm so happy to be able to talk with you. Oh, it's great. Thanks, Mark. Well, you know, we've we have we've talked about these issues for so long and I I feel like you have have just accomplished an amazing amount over the years that you've been in in this work. But can you tell me a little bit about what actually got you started thinking about what's good for older adults, what's good for young people and what's absolutely terrific when you bring those two together? You know, I think for me, I spent the first 15 years of my career focused on kids' issues and and particularly how we could do a better job helping low-income kids get a better education and have better life prospects. And one of the really powerful insights that was coming both from long-term research and also from evaluations of effective programs was the power of caring. There's a remarkable 40-year study done by a psychologist at the University of California named Emmy Werner who studied a group of kids growing up in poverty on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. She studied the entire birth cohort of children born in 1956 on Kauai with the belief that no matter how bad the circumstances were, and they were actually lots of poverty and family breakup and substance abuse, and that, that still some kids would manage to make it. And she was right about that. And when she looked at the trajectory of the 40 years of the kids who who managed to succeed against the odds, the common experience was a caring adult who had taken them under wing, oftentimes an older person, a neighbor, a coach, a barber. And in fact, Yuri Braffenbrenner, one of the great child development experts of the last 50 years at the end of his career, was asked this question of what's the most important thing that kids need. And he said, what every child needs is at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about them. And, and so I... You know, coming at it from this perspective of young people and their needs and having hundreds and hundreds of interviews with young people, I was hearing the same thing. But one of the problems was that there weren't enough adults who had enough time to be irrationally crazy about young people. And it just seemed like older people were a potential goldmine for that work. And so that's really my, my interest grew out of all this research and experience that young people needed caring adults. And it just seemed like older people had both the numbers and the time and the natural interest to provide that kind of connection. It's great. You know, it really seems like it it always makes so much sense when you think about what happens when older people become engaged in young people's lives and what that means for the younger person, but also what it means for the older person. But some people sometimes describe it as just sort of magic, like it can just happen. And I think we both know that it takes a lot of work. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned as you've worked to try to really bring generations together? Your question really prompts two thoughts. One is that I think when I started doing this work, I was pretty naive. I was thinking in narrow 
terms of unmet needs on the part of young people, untapped resources on the part of older people. And I think what I, I didn't appreciate at the time is it's not just that older people are warm bodies you know, to provide this kind of support, but as we get older, we actually get better at this kind of work. And now there's a parallel body of research that shows that connecting cross-generational lines is one of the most powerful sources of happiness in in later life, the Harvard Adult Development Studies in its 83rd year, it's kind of the adult equivalent to the study that Emmy Werner did of the children over 40 years, has shown that older people who connect with support, form deep relationships with young people are three times as likely to be happy as those who fail to do so. And other research has shown that the skills needed to form these extremely powerful bonds blossom as we get older. Emotional regulation, empathy, all get stronger as we get more experience and go through life. So I, I think it's taken me 30 years. I probably should have understood this from the beginning, but I wasn't smart enough to. But it's that there is a magic to this connection across generations, that there's a strong developmental fit. I think that the, the needs and the assets of older and younger people together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. If young people need to be nurtured, older people need to be needed to nurture the next generation. And it's something that really goes back to the beginning of human evolution. Evolutionary anthropologists now think that the role of older people in, in the early days of human evolution was critical. And so I think that what appears to be magic is actually a mix of evolution and human development and the problem is, and I think this is the other lesson that I've learned over time, is that we've created a society that makes those kinds of bonds extremely difficult, that we have to go to almost extreme measures to make what's natural normal. And I think that's where we need to make a lot more progress. So Harvard researchers conclude that biology flows downhill, that it's natural and human to connect across generations. And yet we've created a society, we've left people swimming upstream. So I think we need to create more opportunities in daily life for what human development is trying to, to make happen to be realized. I think you're so right that when you talk about how we've made it so difficult, even some of the work that we've done at Generations United, looking at intergenerational shared places and spaces, shared sites, the really the big barriers we run into is how we've made it so tough because of regulations, funding streams, and just sort of the image that we've projected that people are independent and not interdependent, all sort of are things that we have to work to try to, to bring back, I think, on a course that is much more healthy for all of us. But what you've also talked about is that reciprocity between generations and what really is a basis of high-quality intergenerational interactions. And I think you've really represented that reciprocity when you launched your Gen to Gen campaign, that whole concept of it being generations together. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the evolution of that campaign and the things that you're starting to see result from it. I was thinking as you were talking about the environment that we've inherited as a society. And, and before jumping into the campaign, I was thinking about this episode in the television show on Netflix, The Kaminsky Method, with oh, I love that. Arkin and, and Michael Douglas. And I, you probably remember that great scene where Michael Douglas is 
discover that he has prostate cancer, and not only that, his urologist is played by Danny DeVito, which is <laughs> even worse than him. And he's also going broke, and he's wandering through this park in Los Angeles, and he's trying to kind of get his footing, and in the distance he hears the sound of children playing, and he's kind of drawn almost magnetically to this playground that he's sitting there and watching these children in a joyous state and his mood is brightening and all of a sudden in the background that you start seeing all these mothers coming together and then they're joined by a police officer and he's you know they've called the cops because this old <laughs> person is sitting there you know watching kids in the playground and I mean it, it sort of shows how far we've traveled from the imperatives of happiness and human development and that's really the reason we launched the generation to generation campaign is to try to mobilize a movement of older people who are drawn to stand up and show up for kids but most of all to echo what you were saying earlier to work together with younger generations to solve significant problems in society and to come together to create a better future and it's been really heartening to to see how many people have raised their hand and said that that's that's what they're about. And, and it's also surfaced so many great examples, many of which Generations United has highlighted. And, and, and really, Generations United has been unparalleled in raising awareness of these issues and in provoking innovations that could help make the most of the multi-generational society. And I feel like this campaign is, is kind of joining in this great movement that GU has catalyzed. And one of my favorite examples I've learned about since the campaign started is actually in the UK, not in the US, and it's the Now Teach initiative, which was created by Lucy Kellaway, who's a renowned journalist at the Financial Times, was writing for them for almost 40 years, announced a couple years ago that she was going to quit her job and become a math teacher. She was inspired by her daughter, who was in the British equivalent of Teach for America, and mm she did something that nobody in the United States, no role model like Kellaway in the United States has done, is she challenged her readers of a certain age to quit their jobs and join her. And a thousand people came forward. Originally, they had 20 slots. There were 50 older people clamoring for every one of these teaching slots. But what the little told part of the Now Teach story has been that when Lucy formed the program, she ended up joining together with a 28-year-old PhD in education, a woman named Katie Waldegrave, who really runs the program. And Lucy is teaching math in, in a low-income East London neighborhood. And I think it shows not just how deep this longing of older people is to connect with and, and support the next generation, but how older and younger innovators can come together to create something more powerful than either could do on their mm -hmm. own. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I, my favorite news story is was actually featured in this past Sunday's New York Times, and it's the story of Nuns and Nuns, who was one of the winners of our Gen to Gen prize that's part of that campaign. And it's a group of millennial change makers who have been seeking out older nuns who've devoted their life to fighting poverty and homelessness and supporting education to learn about what that means, what it means to live a good life about creating a better world. They form meetups in dozens of cities and have just completed a residency in Burlingame, California, where these young nuns, N-O-N-E-S, millennials who are spiritually inclined but don't belong to any particular religious tradition have come together with these N-U-N-S, nuns. <laughs> 
And I think it just shows how much, to your earlier point, the generations are just longing to learn from each other and how mutual it is. And so I think there's this movement all over the country, all over the world of younger and older people seeking each other out and coming together in ways that are really promising for the society that we're already in, where there are four or five generations living together. So I think it's an exciting moment where this is not just nice, as Generations United has said over and over again, but necessary. For In 2019, for the first time ever, we have more older people than younger ones in the society. And so it's imperative that we we figure out ways for older and younger people to come together that are mutually beneficial. I really agree with you. We were we were talking earlier before we actually started the show today about the fact that Generations United's biennial conference is about to happen, and we're so glad you're going to be a part of that, Mark. But it sold out a month ahead of time, and that's never happened before. So we're seeing just a huge interest. It's sort of like this rock that you and I have been pushing up a hill for so long has made it to the top, and we can push it over the edge. But one of the things that, that you did that I think has been a wonderful, wonderful treat for many people is your new book, How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations. And it's filled with stories, beautiful, beautiful stories that you tell so well. And I think that's one of the things that you and I both have been fortunate to do is that we get to go and visit programs and see people and know how they're impacted and touched when they're able to connect with other generations and when their life has purpose. But one of the things I really enjoyed in your book, too, is the story that you told about John Gardner, because he really was a national treasure, a national hero who was an amazing person, who thought of some of things that were way, way beyond his time. He was just, just a, an amazing person. And I know that you were his intergenerational partner and his mentee in so many ways who was able to carry forward those ideas. So I wondered if you've given that some thought, Mark, now that we're both kind of turning that corner and becoming sort of the elders in the field, is who <laughs> who is going to follow in your footsteps and what are you doing to make sure that there is somebody so when you pass the torch or share the torch, it won't be just John Gardner to you, but it'll be you to someone in the future. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I wrote this book, I, I really started out in a state of, of outrage over uh, Silicon Valley and all of their efforts to dramatically expand the lifespan and even conquer death, which is high on the, their agenda. And I, my feeling was that we needed to spend less time trying to hang on to our youth to be young and more time focused on being there for those who actually are. And that's how we would live on through investing in the next generation, not trying to be the next generation. And when I stopped raging about the $45 billion that Silicon Valley is spending annually on extending life and, and really thinking about my own life as somebody who started, you know, like you, working on these issues in my 20s and now I'm a ripe old 61, I realized that at every juncture along the way, there were some of them very accomplished like John, but others, people who'd lived very modest lives, but who had this great gift of learning from and being close to. And I realized that I had become much better at being mentored by these wonderful elders, and I wasn't nearly as good as 
giving as receiving. And so I have been thinking much more consciously about how I could take some of the lessons I learned from people like John and pass them on in working with young people. And one of the biggest lessons that I think I learned from John, well, there were really two. One was he said in the speech he founded Common Cause, which was the first campaign finance reform organization. At their 20th anniversary, he got up, he was in his 70s at that point, and he said, I'm more conscious than ever of the passage of time. And mm-hmm. I really feel that this way uh, these days. I, I just don't take for granted the idea that I'm going to live for decades more. I feel a much greater sense of urgency to work with younger people to make the most of what time we do have. And the second thing he told me that when I think back really stands out, he said it it took him a long time, but he realized it was much more important to be interested than to be interesting. (laughs) Mm. Essentially, much much better at listening than pontificating. And John was like that. You know, you'd go see him and he'd say, what's on your mind? And he really was interested in what was in your mind. So, I don't know, I I really have been trying to follow in the footsteps of these wonderful older mentors who I had the gift of crossing paths with and trying to become an elder myself. I think that's terrific. I think that's the most wonderful gift that we can give to the people that, that helped us along the way. So it's And it's, it's also kind of fun to hear you talk about, I love that quote from John Gardner, because my husband recently retired, and he knows the work that I do that you do. And so I think it was a little bit intimidating for him because, of course, I would keep going, what's purpose? What's your purpose going to be? What are you going to do besides some of the things that you've wanted to do? What are you going to do to continue to give back? And I said, and above all, you need to be make sure that you're still interesting because I don't want to hear about some of the mundane things every day. <laughs> and so somebody gave him a book, and the title is How to Be Interesting. So he probably... Oh, that's great. <laughs> but I think I'm well, going to... Well, I was thinking about our, our joint mentor, Nancy Hankin, you know, who's, who was such a pioneer in all the work. And I know when we were young, Nancy was already accomplishing great things. And one of the, the joys of the book was getting a chance to to sit down with her and, and, and to listen to her stories about working with Maggie Kuhn, the great intergenerational Mm, pioneer, and how Nancy herself had been mentored by this older person. And in the the course of that, I discovered uh, this great story about Maggie Kuhn being buried in Philadelphia under a gravestone that says, here lies Maggie Kuhn under the only stone she left unturned. (laughs) So maybe we just have to keep turning over those stones if we want to follow in the tradition of Maggie and Nancy. I agree. Well, you know, Mark, I can never have a conversation without you without it turning to music and film. And we've already touched on a show that I think we both have really enjoyed uh, recently. But tell me a little bit, what are you listening to or what are you looking forward to seeing? What's going on in that other part of your life? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. I just started watching a new documentary that is relatively obscure, but it's called Adam and Satan, or maybe it's Satan and Adam, but it's the story of a young Columbia University grad student and blues harmonica player who uh, discovers an older African-American blues guitarist in Harlem, and the two of them form beautiful musical partnership. And so I'm looking forward to to seeing that. And it's just a reminder of how much the intergenerational ideal that we're both so enamored of is alive and well and has long been in the, in the realm of music. I think for me, when I was starting this book that you mentioned, 
the probably the biggest inspiration of all was a film called Keep On Keeping On about oh, Clark Curry, the great jazz trumpet player. Dizzy Gillespie considered the greatest jazz trumpet player of all time and had spent his whole life mentoring younger musicians and his relationship with Justin Coughlin, a blind 20-something piano player, and how much they helped each other as Clark Curry himself became blind from complications of diabetes and uh, how Justin helped him navigate a sightless world and at the same time how Turi so beautifully helped Coughlin find his own voice and I felt like that movie captures this fundamental lesson about how we can be good elders. Turi never was interested in Coughlin sounding like Turi. He wanted Coughlin to sound like Coughlin and help this younger person find their own unique, distinctive voice. And so I keep watching these films that are rooted in music and that illustrate the power of the intergenerational bond in ways that radiate far beyond the arts. Oh, I think you're so right. Now I've got a new documentary to add to my list. But you know, Mark, <laughs> you know, Mark, just like your book about living forever, I could talk to you forever, and I know that that would be very selfish of me, so I, we need to probably start to wind down. But I was thinking that you've been doing so many interviews recently because of the book and the work that you're involved with. Is there a question that somebody hasn't asked you that you wish they would ask you? You know, I think that question that we've talked about for a long time is how can we develop a policy agenda Mm. in this country that enables these essential generational connections to happen at a a much grander scale and in the institutions of daily life, in, in education, in workplaces, in housing, and in ways that go beyond these very powerful and compelling but small scale examples that we've seen. And I think for me, there's kind of bittersweet quality because I, you know, as I was writing the book, I went to Singapore where they spent three billion Singaporean dollars in a city of four million people to try to create a kampong for all ages, kampong being the Mm -hmm. Malay word for village built around intergenerational harmony. And even in our own past, when JFK gave his powerful speech on aging to Congress in 1963 and talked about how he had years to life. Now it was time to add life to those years. He then laid out this extraordinarily ambitious policy agenda to make that happen. And I feel very frustrated that we don't even have a debate in the country now about how to take these ideas to scale in a way that's commensurate with the need and the opportunity. And again, 2019, first year ever, more people over 60 than under 18 in this country, shouldn't we be doing that now? Shouldn't we be arguing about different ways to make the most of the multi-generational opportunity? And so I think when I get asked that question, I feel like I don't have the answer, but I feel even more concerned because we're not even having the discussion. I so agree with you and really look forward to continuing that conversation with you because I I know that's something we have touched on and that we both believe deeply is going to be needed in order for this to really become ingrained and to carry forward and to scale, as you said. So, Mark, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining me today. I want to encourage everybody who's listening, if you haven't read Mark's new book on 
How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations. Be sure to get a copy. I think you'll love it as much as we at Generations United have really enjoyed it and appreciate everything it's doing to bring attention to these important efforts around the country. I want to thank you folks who've been listening for joining us today. Um, I'm looking forward to that the next conversation we have is going to be with Michelle Singletary, syndicated columnist who was raised by her grandmother, Big Mama. And she is just a wonderful person to have a conversation with about how important multi-generational families are. At Generations United, I'd like to encourage you to take a look at some of our latest resources on really using spaces and places to connect generations. It's all up on our website. And then the last thing I'd like to ask you to do is to please leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming platform you listen to. We really think that these issues are important and we need you to help us lift them up so that we're not just talking about how great intergenerational connections could be, but how great they are in every community and neighborhood in the country. So Mark, thank you. Look forward to seeing you soon. And I hope everyone has a terrific day. Thank you, Donna. It was such a pleasure. Thank you.